Week 31, so last week of the story. Who's enjoyed it? Who, who kept going? Who was able to... Yeah, nice job, Mel. We had one. Um, look, it is, it, it is hard. And um, to go through it, you know, to be committed to something for 31 weeks. And our small group, as we were talking, um, you know, throughout the year, we're really thankful for small group because um, we meet on Monday nights and on Monday afternoon, most of us are in the, in the, you know, the story reading to catch up so we're not lost. And so I was thankful that we had the, had the chance to do that. But it's a mammoth effort to work our way through Genesis to Revelation in just 31 weeks. It's a bit of a time, but it's also not much because there's a lot there's a lot in it. Um, but the story, I suppose, has given us um, the benefit of, I mean, not everything is in there. It's fairly condensed, but it gives us a really good picture of what God was doing right throughout history. It's the story of God and his people, it says, as the, as the tagline. And what we're about to discover about the book of Revelation is that it is no different to the rest of the book. Guess what? God's at work. And, um, and that even though it speaks of the end of time and earth as we know it, the book of Revelation is meant to be a source of hope and encouragement for his church. So who's excited to get into it? Yeah, yeah me too. You know, social media has given us some good and bad. Pretty remarkably... I graduated primary school in 1995, and remarkably, I'm able to go and talk to some people I haven't seen in 1995 like I know them, and we can connect. It's pretty cool, social media. But it's also given us an unfiltered platform to share all of your vague, unfounded opinions to over four and a half billion social media users around the world. 64% of the world's population are are on a social media platform. That's crazy, right? And guess what? You can share those opinions right from your living room. And that's pretty dangerous, I think. And, um, you know, thanks to social media, I know of several definite dates of the apocalypse (laughs) um, using some secret biblical code. I know um, of three... American presidents, who are all the Antichrist. (laughs) And supposedly I've seen the four horsemen of the apocalypse come several times. And the symbolism can make it really difficult to understand exactly what Jesus Christ is actually saying to his people through Revelation. Because some of the text is literal. He says exactly what it means. And some is symbolic. The understanding of the language... You know, written in Greek text is meant that the first audience, those that the letters and the book of Revelation was written to, would actually comprehend it a little easier than what us Westerners would in 2022. In advance of today's message, I've listened to a number of podcasts and um, done some research on eschatology, which is just a really fancy name for what your thoughts are on what happens after death. And um, guess what? It's a minefield. It is an absolute minefield. I think it would actually be a bit of a, a good time, a bit of a ride at some point in time to go through and do a series 
on the book of Revelation as a church. We'd probably need a couple of months, I'd, I'd suggest. If Nathan's watching online, who's with me? Revelation series, eight weeks? Come on, yeah, come on. Nathan, the people have spoken. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes, probably for a good reason. <laughs> Each chapter has a lot of importance. But in the story, if you had a chance to read through that, it only really covers from chapters 1 to 5, and then it skips forward to chapters 19 to 22, to the end of the, um, to the, end of the Bible. And so today, here's what I'm going to try to do. First, we're going to try and understand the context in time in which the book was written, and hence why it was important and necessary to be written. We're going to then look at why the book is important to the church now. And then we're going to look at why it's important for the church in the future. So let's start with the word revelation. In Greek, the word for a revelation is apocalypsis. And um, sounds a lot like apocalypse because the origin is the same. We don't call the book apocalypse because... The word has taken a different meaning in our English language. If I look to some of you guys and I say that word apocalypse, you're probably thinking of, um, you know, maybe a meteorite coming in from out of, out of, spa- out of space. You know, it's going to hit the planet and end, and end humanity as we know it. Or some crazy shift in the tectonic plates, which is, you know, which is going to destroy everyone on the planet with tidal waves. Well, everyone other than the rock who's going to, you know, save his family and his city. Um, I've seen the movie. Revelation, by definition, is just simply a revealing, an uncovering of what is to come. It's not a word to be feared. It's actually a word to be excited about. The book is written to the church at a time when those who are declaring Jesus as the Messiah, are facing death. They are under intense persecution and they need hope. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, we're told that John is banished to the island of Patmos. And we know that John is the one that the word was given to, the book of Revelation, to write for us. John chapter 1, verse 9 says, I, John, your brother and companion... In the, in the suffering and kingdom and patient... Oh, sorry, pardon me. I, John, your brother and, com, and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Historical accounts tell us that the Roman Empire is going about executing church leaders and those who are proclaiming that the messianic prophecies are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The teaching of Jesus Christ, which is now spreading throughout the world, actually, thanks to the Roman Empire, is teaching Christians to worship no other God but the one true God. And for Romans, for the Roman rule... This is threatening their idea of peace and prosperity. And this had come about because of the established philosophy to prioritise Roman state before anything else. 
Can you see the conflict? One saying to put Christ before all else. The other is saying, put the Roman state before else. Hence, the leader of the Roman state, or Caesar, was like God amongst the empire. And under his authority, 10 of the remaining 11 disciples are gruesomely martyred for their faith. We heard about Paul last week from Pastor Beck, beheaded under the command of Emperor Nero. Latin historians recount John, the youngest and last of the disciples, was sentenced to death by the next Roman emperor. His name was Domitian. And the accounts say that John, in front of a vast crowd, is lowered into a pot of boiling oil. Miraculously, John emerges from the boiling oil and continues to proclaim the word of God. And so the emperor does not know what to do with this man. He can't kill him. Or if he does, as a martyr, it's likely the word is going to spread even more. And so he exiles him to the island of Patmos where he's out of sight and out of mind. And um, no longer able to disrupt Pax Romana, the peace of the Roman Empire. And so this sets a time and the place for the book of Revelation. A time where the church of Christ has been born, it's under intense persecution, and believing in Jesus Christ as the Messiah and by being active in that faith would see their belongings, their rights taken away, would see them jailed, imprisoned, and potentially killed. This is the context in which we read the book of Revelation in this time. As we read through chapter 1 of the book, very quickly we discover who wrote and why the book is written. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what soon must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written, because the time is near. The revelation, it says, has come from Jesus Christ. It's not some crazy guy on the island of Patmos. He is simply writing down word for word what he hears and what he sees. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. The intention of the book of Revelation is not, to, is not fear-mongering. It's not to make us afraid. It's to be a blessing to those it was written for and who take to heart or respond to the message of Jesus Christ. As we continue on throughout Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 to 13 and then 16 to 20, on the, on the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around 
to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen. What is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. Thank goodness, he tells us, right? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven golden lampstands representing seven prominent churches of its time and among the lampstands. Did you hear that? Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. And so as not to keep us guessing, the man is revealed as the first and the last, who was dead and is now alive. Look, it's Jesus. <laughs> Described in this vision as walking among the church, placing angels over them. Well, that's reassuring to me. I wanted to read this part because before we go on to the next few chapters, which are letters to the churches, and some of them are a little harder for us to hear as a church, we need to remember this. As Jesus walked the earth during his ministry, he did so with the 12 disciples. He ate with them, he lived with them, he mentored them, he taught them. Because when Jesus was going, it was the disciples that were going to take the word to the world. And now, what do we read? Jesus is now walking amongst the lampstand. He is with the church. Why? Because he loves us. He's speaking to us. He is teaching us. He is discipling us. Why? Because it's the church's responsibility to take the world, take the word out into the world. So Jesus starts by saying, and I know that things are tough. I know that the road I'm asking you to walk is narrow, but it's okay. I'm right with you. And he asks John to write down a message to each of the seven churches. Now, before we go on, although the seven churches, the seven letters, pardon me, to these churches are tailored to speak something specific to each of them, the instruction given to the Revelation congregation is valuable to our Christian congregation today. It is still relevant. The first lesson is the Ephesus lesson. And I'm only going to take one, two lessons from two of the letters. Like I said, we're going to need months to go through this stuff if we're going to, get, if we're going to draw everything out of it. But the letter to the Ephesians um, caught me. 
It says here in Revelation chapter 2, I know, Revelation chapter 2, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. The city of Ephesus in this time is a commercial and it's a cultural hub. It's a big city in amongst Asia Minor. And if we think of um, the equivalent in our Asia-Pacific area, we think of Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. People are busy in the city of Ephesus. They're going around, buzzing around, and they're driving the economy in their region. The city of Ephesus and Laodicea are very similar in this regard. And they both succumb to the trap of what happens when we turn our attention to our own prosperity and success above our love for our God. We forget it is him that makes us great, as it says in Psalm 18. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, pardon me, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 4 to 7, it says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. I will come to you, oh, pardon me, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I remember when I was first dating Julie, and um, I was a keen bean, probably more keen than what she was. And um, I went all out. Man, I, um, I figured out what her favourite songs were. I made her a mixtape, several actually. Um, I waited online on MS, MSN Messenger chat for her to come online. I worked hard. Um, in that time. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I suppose it just speaks to when we fall in love with something, with someone, in that first initial period, it's different. We work harder. <laughs> don't mishear me when I read about Ephesus, I didn't say that Jesus is against financial success and he's against prosperity. He is saying that if those things take the place of Jesus Christ in your life, then you need to repent. He says, you've forsaken the love you had at first, Jesus said. How many remember the day you committed your life to Christ? How many remember the day you fell in love with your partner for the first time? You were compelled to make decisions that improved that relationship. 
when you gave your life to Christ on that first day, you were compelled to make a radical decision. Jesus is saying, rediscover that place, Mark. Get place, get back to that place, Mark. Remember the love that you had for me at first because it caused you to make radical decisions in your life that were good and pleasing to me. The Ephesus lesson is this. Remember the love you had at first. When we heard in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, written some decades, maybe 40 or 50 years prior, he recognises that their energy and their excitement as new Christians is actually permeating throughout the region. And he encourages them in the letter to go further in their faith and follow their instruction for Christian living. I can't read it now because we'll run out of time, but you can write this down if you're taking notes. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. Instructions for Christian living. These are some things that some 30 years, 40, 50 years later, they've forgotten. And they have forgotten their love for Jesus that they had when they first began. Jesus clearly reveals that the consequence for conforming to the world is that the lampstand is removed from its place, the place where Jesus is. Next is the Sardis lesson, the letter to the church in Sardis. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. The Sardis lesson is a confronting one. Reading that, I'm pretty shocked. Because it's the silent killer of the Christian faith, because it's a little more subtle. It's talking about just going through the motions of practicing our faith without feeding our spirit. There's a saying I've heard um, used in some contexts, you know, that saying that says, fake it until you make it. I remember doing a performance review for a guy who'd been working for a year with us and, and, um, and he, he disclosed to me that was his philosophy in, his, in the workplace. He was kind of just faking it till he made it. And I was laughing. And then I went back and had to review all of his work to see all of his mistakes. <laughs> and perhaps it works in some occupations, maybe not as a surgeon, but... Um, <laughs> but the warning of the, the Sardis lesson is the trap that Christians can fall into of merely going through the motions of practicing our faith without really feeding the spirit. And the outcome is this. We present the perception that we've got it all together, we fake it. Although the reality is that we're spiritually dead and we'll never make it. The Sardis lesson is actively fuel your faith. The Sardis lesson, I know that each year we talk a lot about high school camp. It only goes for a week, and I hope you guys don't tire of hearing about it. 
I've enjoyed being a camp leader there only four times. And um, I know that might surprise you because I'm almost 40, probably should be 20 times. But um, each year, the Spirit leads me to connect a little deeper with two to three other students in my team. And um, in my first year as a leader, one year nine student, they'd been a Christian for around a year, wanted to establish a routine of Bible reading. But she mentioned that she was afraid to start reading through the Bible because she was afraid to fail. Now, I use the Bible app. It's really handy for me. And I mentioned that I'd be happy to keep her accountable. And as a form of accountability and fellowship, the app can allow someone else to know your reading activity. That's pretty confronting. Imagine having someone know how regularly you're reading the Bible. Um, But she did it. She established a routine in the the Word alongside a community. And this young woman has established a genuine faith that inspires those around her. Get this. She finished school the year before last, and she spent the last year studying at Bible college just simply to know more before she goes into a degree in medicine. Smart woman. She's a leader now in a church. She speaks regularly from the pulpit. She's led a number of her friends now to the Lord. She's 18. I had a student in my, in my year this, this term, uh, this year. Pardon, I had a student in my team this year. And they got in touch with me a couple of weeks ago and mentioned that after a couple of false starts, they're now on a 31-day streak on the Bible app. Not just reading a verse or two a day, they're reading chapters a day. And I got an email a couple of weeks ago to say it's now routine for them. How good. And guess what? They're noticing relationships change in their life. And they're noticing an increased joy as they go about it. These are great testimonies from two young Christians who are actively fueling their faith. They're intentional about the pursuit to learn more and be a lot more like Christ. And he's now changing their lives in ways that they could never have anticipated. The Sardis lesson is an important one because Jesus follows it with a warning for slumbering believers. Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Jesus is saying that the consequence for not responding to him, not being active in your faith, is death. He's looking for a genuine heart, the truly faithful servant who is active in their faith, not the faker, not the spiritually dead. It's pretty heavy stuff. But I'm going on holidays tomorrow, and so I'm kind of just dropping this truth bomb and phew. <laughs> but all I'm doing here is just reading the word. It's a warning straight 
from Jesus Christ himself because he loves us. The benefit of the Spirit in you is that you have an advocate sent to help. And the benefit of the church is that this is not a solo race. It's a good news story for us. We have a community of believers encouraging each other in our walk. How are you encouraging each other? Now, the revelation of Christ takes a turn from an exhortation of the seven churches to a revealing of the spiritual reality. And it includes a glimpse into the final days. And it's a good news story for us, church. It's a good news story. Because although Matthew chapter 7, verse 14 says, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it, the picture of what to come, of what is to come, is encouraging and it helps to spur us on. The story doesn't take us through those 12 chapters prior to chapter, um, to chapter 19, but the highlights are worth it. Because the scripture tells us of an epic spiritual battle. Jesus Christ overcomes the dragon, which is a manifestation of the serpent from the Garden of Eden that we read all the way back in Genesis. And through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we also triumph over it. That's good news. And I want to give a shout out at the moment to the Bible Project and um, its founder, Dr. Tim Mackey. Tim is well-versed in both Hebrew and Greek texts, and then amongst all the confusion around understanding prophetic scripture and some of the crazy, crazy theories that you might read about this book, I found his voice to be a voice of reason, and one that personally I've come to trust. And so I'm going to throw up two, um, two videos. I'm not going to watch them just yet. We don't have time, but there are two... Um, what do they call them? I should know by now. I've just lived through the COVID pandemic. They're QR codes. Take a photo of them. And I encourage you to read them. This is 30 minutes, 20-something minutes of your life that you won't regret. The first time I watched these two videos, I was just like, ah. Yeah, it's just like these moments where I'm audibly, everything was just coming together a little bit. So please, please watch them. And let's talk about them. If you're, if you're like, yeah, Mark, I don't really agree with that. If you ever thought about um, you know, what the relevance of the number 666 means, what that mark means, he covers it a little bit in there. And it actually made sense to me. The point of these chapters is this, though. And here's the takeaway for that space between chapters 5 to 19. That Jesus will return as a king to deal with evil and vindicate his followers. That's it in a nutshell. How good. And it's good to know that we are on the right side. Who's with me? All right. And the story picks up again in chapter 21. And so God, in his love and mercy, reveals a picture of our inheritance for us to look forward to and spur us on. And at times... It can be the sight of the goal which encourages us to stay the course. 
I heard this story during the week of this woman. Her name was Florence Chadwick. In 1952, she stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. I had a look. It's, it's around about 36 kilometres. It's a fair way. She'd already been the first woman to go back and forth the English Channel. And on this day that she stepped into the water off that island, the weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her on this trip. But still, she swam for 15 hours when she begged to be taken out of the water. Her mother, who was in a boat alongside, called out to her. She said, you're close. You can make it. She carried on for a time, but finally, after she was physically and emotionally exhausted, she simply stopped swimming. And they pulled her into the boat. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than half a mile away. And at a press conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. And I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Be blessed, church, because chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation, Jesus has cleared the fog and given us a glimpse of the shore. It's the final vision of John's apocalypse. The marriage of heaven and earth, where God reveals I am making everything new. This place is a restored creation healed of pain and suffering. It was prophesied hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah chapter 65 and then repeated again in Revelation 21 that he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Heaven, come to earth. Revelation 22 tells us that this place is a restored Eden. But it's not like Eden that we read in, in Genesis. It's something different. It's something more. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, it says, A new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a holy city has come to earth where God's children dwell in peace and unity together. I'm not reading from the Bible here, but the obvious difference between the old Jerusalem and the new from a distance, I mean, apart from the streets of gold and the walls that are filled with diamonds, is, is that there is no longer a temple. And it says in Revelation 21, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The presence of God is not confined to a holy of holies in the temple somewhere. The presence of God permeates throughout the holy city where no one escapes it. 
That's kind of cool. And there is a direct relationship once again between us and our Saviour. Look, there is nothing I can say that gives justice to this. (laughs) I can't paint you a picture. Many have tried. But as the fog is pulled away for a moment and the inheritance of Christ is revealed, the miraculous thing is he shares it with us. His inheritance is our inheritance. And so Revelation ends with, right at the end of the book, it ends with an invitation, and it ends with a warning. I'm going to read it. Verses 12 to 15 in chapter 22. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murders, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And it cracks me up because those are my friends. Those are my family. What does it compel me to do for them? But you see, Jesus wouldn't be writing a warning to his people if it wasn't too late to repent and to ask for forgiveness and turn to him. You know, 30 weeks ago, the creation story showed us a demonstration of a relationship between man and their Lord. We broke it, but the second creation is eternal. There's no mention of a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in this new earth because you've lived this life and you have chosen good over evil. Secondly, the enemy has already been defeated. There's no serpent in this garden. For us, the end of the story is only just the beginning. The road is narrow, but the reward is glorious. And so these are the questions we need to contend with hills. Have you forgotten your first love? Have you put anything else before Jesus Christ? Well, turn back to a father that is waiting for you with open arms. Are you slumbering, Christian? Wake up. Because not only does a life of eternity with your Savior depend on it, but a life full of joy and peaceful assurance is your reward from now until that time. I want to invite the worship team to come up as we pray.
Lord Jesus, mixed emotion about this word. But the reality is, it's truth. I thank you for it because I read it and I'm encouraged in the choices that I've made, the life that I'm living for you. And God, the reality of what eternity looks like for me. I'm challenged because of what it means for those that I love who don't know you. And I'm challenged because, Lord, as a church, sometimes we lose our focus. But God, I thank you for your love. I thank you for the way that you come alongside us. Lord, I thank you that you are among your church. And you're saying, I still love you. I still love you. Come back to me and let's get going. So Father, would you speak into our hearts this morning? For those things in our life, God, that have taken the place of you in our hearts, Father, reveal them to us. Lord, when we are sleeping as Christians, Father, would you stir us? Lord, would your Holy Spirit spark like a fire within us that cannot be contained? Lord, the evidence of our life with you on display for all to see. Alive in you. Amen. All right. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come forward while we do this last while we do this last song. I um I would suppose that um, when you read through the letters to the churches, when you hear a message like this, I'd suppose that the Holy Spirit would be would be speaking to you right now. That's what, it, that's what he does. And so if you want to respond this morning, I just encourage you to do it. Don't walk out that door if there is a pull on your heart. If you have not given your life to Christ this morning, here it is. Come forward and we'll pray a prayer with you. Your life is changed. And you'll know which side of the gates that you'll be standing If you are challenged because there are some things in your life that have taken the place of the Lord in your life, come forward and receive prayer. Walk out there a changed person. If you want to be more alive in Christ, come forward this morning and be prayed for. Walk out those doors a changed person. If you have challenges in your life that you are struggling with, Guess what? As part of the church, our job is to get alongside one another, pray for one another, stir each other on and walk out that door together 
alongside one another in partnership with Christ and make a difference in this world. That's what we do. That's what the church is for. God bless you guys. I love you. And um, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Blessed are those who hear these words. Amen. Amen.